0: Applications are now open for the 18th annual Tin House Summer Workshop, which takes place July 11th to the 19th on the campus of Reed College in Portland, Oregon. The program combines workshops, seminars, career panels, agent meetings, and readings. This year's faculty includes Carmen Maria Machado, Tommy Orange, Kiesi Lehman, Amy Nezuka-Matatil, and many more. In addition to scholarships, payment plans are available for both the application fee and tuition. More information can be found at tinhouse.com workshops. I wanted to start 2020 by simply thanking people who have supported Between the Covers throughout the years. It is around 1% of listeners that also become patrons of the show. But while that may at first seem small, the effect has been an outsized one. It really is because of you that I've been able to continue the show, that it has been able to flourish, and that I've been able to create the time and space to dedicate to the preparation of each episode. So, in deference to the people who are already supporting or have already supported between the covers— I'll refrain from doing my normal spiel about what you can get in return by becoming a patron. If you're moved by what you hear, you can find out more at patreon.com slash between the covers or at tinhouse.com slash support. I'm excited to share the incredible writers we have in store for 2020 beginning today with the poet Karthika Nair. Enjoy today's program.
1: is thrown into the washing machine that is my brain, and it's put on
0: spin. Good morning, and welcome to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's guest is Indian-born, Paris-based poet, dance producer, and dance curator, Karthika Nair. Karthika Nair is the author of several books, including the poetry collection Bearings, the Modern Day Indian Fairy Tale for Children, The Honey Hunter, and the Collaborative Over and Underground in Mumbai and Paris, a Travelogue in Verse, written with Mumbai-based poet Sampurna Chatterjee and illustrated by Joël Jolivet and Roshni Viam. Nair's the co-founder and artistic advisor to the Belgian-based dance company Eastman founded and directed by choreographer Sidi Larbi Sherkoe. She was the principal scriptwriter of the multiple award-winning dance solo by choreographer Akram Khan, entitled Desh, and its adaptation for young adult audiences, Chodo Desh. She has also headed the Department of Programming and Production at the National Museum of History and Immigration in Paris, was associate Programmer of the festival Equilibrio in Rome and blueprinted the biannual Prakriti Excellence in Contemporary Dance Awards in India. Karthika Nair is here today to discuss her book Until the Lions, Echoes from the Mahabharata, out from Archipelago Books. Nominated alongside Salman Rushdie's Two Years, Eight Months, and 28 Nights, and Amitav Ghosh's Flood of Fire. Until the Lions won the Tata Literary Live Award for Fiction, the first poetry book to win this award, and was also shortlisted for the Atta Galata Prize for Fiction. Actress Françoise Gillard did a dramatized reading of the French translations of the book at the Comédie Française, and choreographer Akram Khan adapted a section of the book into a dance performance also called Until the Lions which The Guardian called a modern masterpiece. As if that were not enough, Until the Lions is currently being adapted to the stage as an opera. Kazim Ali says of Until the Lions, Karthika Nair powerfully reimagines the national epic from the margins, allowing the suppressed voices to be centered and given subjectivity. Lyrical and somatically dense, the prose and verse of this book creates an intense and coruscating chorus. In a world that seems more riven by the political tensions of capital and multiplicity, that seems more dangerous and conflicted, this epic feels like a balm. Shailja Patel adds, Until the Lions is the Mahabharata I longed for as a child. These are the voices I imagined as I sat through enforced viewings of the endless TV series bristling with waxed mustachios and phallic posturing. Karthika Nair has pulled off a truly epic feat. Both the scope of her ambition and the skill of her execution inspire awe and elation. Finally, Jeet Tayal says, in this retelling of the Mahabharata from the point of view of its hitherto minor female characters, Karthika Nair uncovers a seminal feminist text. Until the lion's makes dazzling use of concrete verse and surreptitious rhyme to tell a story you think you know. By poem's end, you understand with gratitude that you know nothing and the old world has been made new. This is nervy and accomplished poetry. Listen. Welcome to Between the Covers, Karthika Nair.
2: Thank you, David. Thank you so much for inviting me.
0: So... Before we talk about your unique engagement with the Mahabharata, I think it would be good if we oriented an American audience to what the Mahabharata is. And and maybe you could just talk about how you go about explaining the role it has in India and in Hindu culture when you speak to Westerners and orient them to your retelling of it.
2: The Mahabharata along with the Ramayana um, is one of the great foundational epics of South Asia, South and Southeast Asia, because it's traveled widely. Um, it would be the equivalent of the Iliad and the Odyssey, and actually um, it's about twice as long as both of them put together. Hmm. Uh, it you know, has, has tales which are interspersed between the divine and the human, so there's a very interesting engagement between the two as well, which maybe uh, makes it a little more... Um, identifiable um, in every era. There have been retellings all through the history of, well, since since the epic sort of found its way into the popular consciousness about 2,000 years ago. Hmm. Well, and you- uh, as a story, it's also, for me, very interesting because it does not have a, a demonized other who is an invader or... Uh, um, an abductor it is a story within one clan it 's an inter-and-assign war between cousins uh, over over an empire, so very identifiable again and unfortunately timeless. There are those who are perceived to be the good and those who are perceived to be the evil, but that keeps changing depending on the location that one stands in and what is refreshing is also that the the good are not um incessantly good and the evil or the ones in the wrong also are given um, the opportunity to show shades some some very strong shades of goodness and generosity and 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 gentleness. Um it's it's very it becomes very clear through a reading that um grey is perhaps the shade that humanity is imbued with much mm. more than
0: anything else. And is that compelling notion that there is no demonized other from the outside, why you would choose to retell the Mahabharata versus the Ramayana?
2: Well, it, it's true that the Ramayana is much more about the ideal king and the ideal man. And there are few ideals in the Mahabharata. In fact, one of the things we see, despite the fact that there is a war for righteousness, and I put that in quotes, uh, being being waged and and, and is fought at terrible, um, unbearable cost. At the end, we see that once the fighting gets underway, these these lines and colors get terribly blurred. Mm. Uh, that unspeakable evil is, is committed in the name of this righteousness. Mm. So th- that's something I've always been fascinated with, that the Mahabharata is, is, a, very, is a text that's very self-aware.
0: Well, you've said before that the Mahabharata is so much part of the collective consciousness of South Asia that you've never really read it for the first time, that you encounter it informing so many things of everyday life. So I was wondering if you could walk through some of the ways in which you encountered the Mahabharata without looking for it as you grew up in India.
2: Actually, that particular statement is, uh, is, is attributed to the great uh, poet, scholar and translator, A.K. Ramanujan, who spent much of his life in in the United States. Um, he said that in South Asia, no one really hears the Mahabharata or reads the Mahabharata for the very first time, that, implying that it has, as you said, seeped into the collective unconsciousness at a very young age. And it was the way for me as well. I would say that, you know, I heard it long before I learned to read. And I saw it in classical and traditional art performances like the Kathakari, um, during all-night shows that my parents took me to, probably at very age-appropriate shows at that, because you have marvellous, vivid masks, uh, complete costumes that can either be formidable or impressive or, or just downright scary, depending on how you look at them. And, in fact, it also... Um, provided the first reading material I had because most Indians of at least three or four generations post independence grew up with um a collection called the Amachitrakata which, you know, kind of combines the power of Marvel and D C. Uh, everything, whether it was history, legend, myth or fable, was told to three through these comics, which were I think published every week. You every week you had a new one. And so there were they were very compact forms illustrated comic books, where you had little chapters from the Mahabharata and the Ramayana, just as you had of Indian history, or you had of um, the equivalent of Aesop's fables. Mm. So, you know, it it in that sense, the Mahabharata entered my um, imagination through various ways, long before I sat down to actually read one of the authorized translations or I heard the Sanskrit version being read by my grandparents or so on and so forth. And and it's it's entered every aspect of life. The performative, as I said, um the, the linguistic, um even even everyday notions uh, of um of symbolicism, because you have it in Proverbs, or, you know, you'd use a shorthand with certain characters. And in that sense, it goes beyond the Hindu experience. There's a Persian Mahabharata, which was commissioned in Akbar's time, in the Mughal Emperor Akbar's time. It's traveled to Southeast Asia, and it exists um, as a form of puppet theater, the Voyang, uh, in Java. So it's traveled far and wide.
0: Well, I read it as I was preparing that there is a Hindu belief that Having the Ramayana in the home sanctifies it, but having a copy of the Mahabharata in the home brings discord. And in your author's note, you begin with an anecdote about your father who fought in all three of India's wars in the 60s and 70s and overhears you as a child bragging about his um, participating in the wars. And I was hoping maybe you could speak to what happened in that moment, how that moment affected you, and how that ultimately informs the way you approach until the lions
2: as children it's funny the things you do brag about and the things that you know give you a certain cachet or not i grew up in a in a very army um background um and and my immediate friends were all uh, the children of my father's peers so what we generally bragged about was our parents' war records and as i say in the introduction the person who had say the highest cachet who was on top of the totem pole was someone who was horrible but whose whose father had lost a limb in a in a war and you know the rest of us were sort of scrambling for place My father heard this this particular discussion with each person vying um, on on vicarious glory, as it were. And he didn't say anything then. And that evening, uh, that night, um, he sat me down and he explained that war was a dreadful thing, that it was nothing to be proud of, that it was fought for often um, not very worthy reasons, at best to defend land and freedom. But whatever the whatever the reason, the cost was almost immeasurable. And it did terrible things to people that the best of people were forced to um, make choices they shouldn't, and that they often regretted. And also that victory brought out very often the worst in human beings. Mm. And and he said, you know, he didn't want me to go around boasting about um, The wars that he had fought or um, the fact that, you know, he'd been commended, that was not something that he wanted to hear. Um, There were other things to be proud of.
0: Well, again, in your author's note, you talk about how each character in Until the Lions approaches war from a different vantage point as a reminder, like your father reminded you of the cost of, of war. And you name militant patriarchy as the wellspring of war and point to people Considered inferior, indigenous communities, lower castes, and women as the first casualties of war and conflict. You say of women in particular, their bodies become territories, possessed, ravaged, plowed as though for produce, discarded, carelessly destroyed. But unlike the land, the stigma of conquest is attached to their person. They become repositories of lost honor, individual and collective. At the beginning of the book, you have an epigraph from Chinua Chebe, where he cites the proverb that until the lions have their own historians, the history of the hunt will always glorify the hunter. So I was hoping maybe you could talk about the various ways you become a historian of the lion in Until the Lions.
2: I think um, what I've tried to be is, is a conduit to these various lions and lionesses primarily, uh, because 16 of the 19 voices are female voices. Um, and they come from positions that are widely varied. There are queens, there are abducted princesses who lose everything, um, their families, their, their land, their honour, their bodies. Uh, there is a canine observer of all this carnage who is distinctly suspicious of the human race because his own species has never benefited from any association to um, to mankind. That's the way she actually sees it. There are soldiers who are the first collateral of war and who've been told that this is a holy war and it's it's a way of escaping the endless cycle of, of caste, for instance, which the younger soldier. so it's a conversation between a father and a son, and that actually a conversation that bookends until the lions where the the father urges the son to to join the war as a way of escaping you know the the caste system and its abuses and the son disabuses him of that notion he says there is no heaven there is no you know there th- th- this this sacred war does not bring that release there there is absolutely no divine um escape so there are, there are voices which are varied there are um Handmaidens who are pretty much used as, again, the question of whose body is it and who has ownership over their sexuality, Uh, their fertility comes up because there are handmaidens who, like I said, are basically just considered wombs for a further generation of warriors and and kings. Um, There are queens uh, who rule in everything but name because their own sons are absolutely feckless. So it's it's a it's a variety again of positions and as you've pointed out the landscape changes. I mean that's something I I go into the landscape changes depending on where you stand on the battlefield whether mm. it's back in the palace or whether you're in the thick of the war.
0: Well because you're retelling the epic from the vantage point of marginal characters or characters within the story that are traditionally considered considered inferior one might think that you're inverting the power dynamic of the epic to critique the epic. But in your interview with the Los Angeles Review of Books, you say that the retelling does not violate or overturn the original in any way, because the potential for violation is already latent in the text that the Mahabharata creates the very conditions for the violation. And one could even say it encourages it. And I, I would love to have you unpack that for us. The the ways in which you're retelling it, but you're also maybe uh, boosting the signal of a gesture that's already existent within the epic itself.
2: Actually, that interview, I think, is with um, Shokat majumdar who who refers to a conversation with me. So it's not exactly oh, my really? quotation. Oh, yeah, That's yeah, not that's, your words? Yeah, no, those aren't well, my words. But yes, um, the gist of what um, he sort of quoted... Uh, is 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 true the the violation is latent in the text as to whether it encourages it is more his interpretation than mine
1: interesting um,
2: uh, i I would say that the epic is much more an observer than uh, a critic. There is a great deal that it lays out which sometimes later tellings do not contain for instance this three parva which where where the women uh, who have who are victims of the final kurukshetra war the mothers the widows the daughters the sisters actually upbraid the pandavas and krishna uh, which is a very interesting uh, condemnation of war and that's given position but at the same time you have bhishma uh, just after that, laying out the rules of kingship to Yudhishthira, who is going to the Pandava king, who who will take over the throne of Hastinapur. So the epic in itself provides, um, perhaps not. I mean, it's a recursive text. It's a frame device. You know, the, the 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 framing device that that um, again bookends the epic tells us that it goes through many many voices, many eyes. Um, but I, I I don't know if it yeah I wouldn't say it encourages uh, the violation. I think it's a it's it's at best it is a detached observer. At worst, it takes such and such position to um, vindicate the social structure. Mm. Yes, it does that. But it also provides space for criticizing that social structure through some of the most beloved characters.
0: Can we hear uh, one of the poems? I was thinking we'd start with Fault Lines, number one.
2: Sure. Fault Lines, one. Listen, listen. Hate rises, hate blazes, hate billows from battlefields. Hate arrives, searing rivers, shriveling plains, reaping deserts on its path, even to this doorstep, to rule the roost. Now hate arrives to gorge our mountains in serpentine maws, to smother fir and spruce and hemlock, to parch my blameless sky into white dust, so embers fall as stars. Hate dissevers Taken and Goral, Black Bear, Weaver, Deer, Leopard and Dragonfly, harboured by this hermitage. Hate blanches your still human eyes, Flows down larynx and pharynx and trachea, Leadens the breath and whirlpools memory's voice, Till all you know, all you feel, All you seek is nothingness. Old hate, descended from heavens, Leavened on my land. Old hate, diffused through blood and womb and semen, old hate that I too begat, old hate, bequeathed and bartered, won in battle, given as bride price, hate that blighted six generations of this clan, deforming husbands, grandsons, aunts and nephews, brides and celibates, hate that only one soul eludes, a base-born, sainted bard, Vyasa, my lone living son, Vyasa, with words to hymn the story across millennia, while birth and death and love and youth jostle for place, while hate, old hate, spores and multiplies. In Kurukshetra, the earth sweats her face in blood. Death begins to dance. I've
0: been listening to Karthika Nair read from Until the Lions echoes from the Mahabharata. So in your, in your bomb interview, you say that the goal isn't to reverse the gaze, but instead to multiply the gaze. But while you tell this epic from the perspective of 19 different voices, including, as you say, abducted princesses, tribal queens, a gender shifting God, the voice of this poem you just read, the voice of Satyavati, the fisher queen, could be considered the narrative backbone that holds... Till the lions together that acts as the connective tissue for the book. So tell us who she is and how and why you came to choose her as our guide among so many possibilities.
2: She um, occupies a really interesting place. She's the mother of Vyasa, who is traditionally recognized as the author of the Mahabharata. And the Mahabharata, being um, a a framing, you know, a frame text, has Vyasa in the epic as a character as well. You know, he causes many of the important um, events. Um, Satyavati is generally regarded as the matriarch whose actions set things. You know, into motion. Um, she she is a is a fisher girl, though she's actually a princess who's been abandoned by her royal family. She's she's brought up in the fisher caste, and and a great deal of her actions are also predicated by this impoverished childhood and the desire to regain a certain uh, authority and supremacy. Um, I I chose Satyavati entirely by accident. Initially, I had 18 voices, and 18 is is, is a symbolic number in the Mahabharata. There are 18 books that constitute the epic. The war, the Kurukshetra war, unfolds across 18 days. And I thought, you know, in the way that you have when you come across a concept uh, and you think it's it's immobile, I thought 18 voices was, was my goal. And initially, it was rather fearsome. They were going to be spread across... Across the eighteen parva, um, and and then and then um, you know be attached to different points of time. Uh, it was ridiculously ambitious and probably would have been even more disastrous. Satyavati mm-hmm. happened entirely by accident, and thanks to um, some wonderful poets and editors, uh, Marilyn Hacker, the, the the great American poet who's settled in Paris, uh, Anita Roy, who is uh, editor of my children's book. These were some of the people who read the initial voices. And while they were very encouraging, they pointed out that maybe um, all of us, however familiar we are with the Mahabharata, tend to forget chronology, tend to forget the significance of certain characters and even their names. And they asked me if I didn't want to give, as the Mahabharata itself has, a framing device. And I thought about it and I didn't want something exterior to to the story. And then I, was, I, I, I tried doing it in the voices of Ambika and Ambalika, who are actually Satyavati's daughters-in-law, and that was a terrible poem. It was a terrible, terrible poem, which I popped. It was the only thing that I discarded. <laughs> I was at a residency in Korea, far from everything and everywhere, um, wonderful place called the Toji Foundation. Uh, I, I digress, but it's a great foundation for writers in case anybody's interested. And quite literally uh, felt like the end of the world. The the road actually ended in front of Toji Foundation. All you had was forests and mountains after that. Wow. Um, and I was, you know, trying to figure this out. And, and the words, listen, came into my head. It, it's going to sound like channeling, but it really felt like that. Uh, and the first Satyavati voice came. And then she turned out to be kind of unstoppable. And then it all made sense. Um You know the book. The book is um, the way one reads it is not necessarily the way I wrote it. There are some voices which I'd written um, in different in in a chronology different to what one finds in the book. But Satyavati's voice, which. Uh, interleavens the book is really written like that. So you know, I wrote voice the first voice, which I just read now, and then I'd gone off and written other poems, and then I wrote the second voice in the, sec- the second chapter rather, and then that took over. and And um, she gave me she gave me the book spinal cord. She held it together, mm-hmm. and it and it felt it felt important that she should define her own purpose, um, which is you know which is what she does in the second chapter.
0: Yeah. Well, in doing research about the Mahabharata, I listened to a Mahabharata podcast that suggested that part of the reason the story is so long is that it is concerned with the origin of things. That the story starts at the end, looking back, and it begins with the story of the origins of the story. Not only that, but the story is told at a snake sacrifice, and it even tells the story of the snake's ancestors. So, much like a, a snake swallowing its tail, it's sort of told in a loop and, and in this framing device, as you suggested, which sort of seems fitting that you would choose to go before Vyasa, to go before the chronicler of the traditional telling of the epic to a predecessor and then tell the story through the eyes of that predecessor. Is that Does that ring true for you?
2: It does. It also... Um... It rings, it rings completely true. And I think you know the fact that she is his mother um, imbues with her with a certain natural impatience and authority. And there are several moments in the book when she does comment on the way he is going to tell the story and the way the story will always be known, whereas the truth has several other shades. Hmm. So it's, it's in a sense, it's also a wink and a nod.
0: Yeah. And, and this recursive looping is also in your in your collaborative book in uh, Over and Underground in Paris and Mumbai, where the last line of a poem becomes the opening or final line of the subsequent one by the other poet, and the first line of a poem becomes the last line of the poem that the other poet begins, forcing them to work backwards. Am I am I saying that right?
2: Yes, you are. There are two sections to the book. So yeah. One one works entirely in that sense. And the second one we actually work backwards where the first line of the the, the the one poet had to become the last line of the subsequent poem by the second poet. So it's it's a book that opens from both sides and then meets in the middle.
0: So to return to our um our main voice, Satyavati, um I love the story of her birth that A king is out hunting and has a wet dream while dreaming of his wife but doesn't want to waste the semen, so he scoops it up into a leaf and has it sent to her by eagle. But the eagle has a fight mid-flight with another eagle, and the semen falls into the river and is swallowed by a fish. The fish becomes pregnant instead and is fished out by a fisherman who cuts open the fish to discover two babies, one male and one female. The fisherman presents the babies to the king who only wants to keep the male child. And he names his daughter the one who smells like fish and returns her to the fisherman. So I was hoping you'd read a little bit of of Fault Lines 2, but before you do, I was hoping you'd speak to the Fault Lines series in general, Um, these poems spoken by um, Satyavati, the mother of Vyasa. And what what unites them under this title? and what function does do the fault line series of poems serve in *Until the Lions*?
2: So each each of the voices is very subjective, and so is Satyavati's, as she you know states at the outset. But um, hers is the narrative that is as close to completion as possible. She she lives a very long life, and she also is given the gift of um, Premonition by her son. So, in a, in a sense, in until the lions, she she not she lives through most of the story that I have set out to recount, and she she foresees the rest of it. So she was instrumental in in holding the book together. It is called Echoes from the Mahabharata, but thanks to my early readers and advisors, I did realize that there needs to be a voice that is sort of telling never neutral, but something of a whole story. And, and she, was, she was extremely helpful in, in allowing that to happen. Well, it's
0: interesting how you describe her as holding things together, but these series of poems are called Fault Line. So in a sense, they're about divisions and about the tensions on two sides.
2: Yes, but fault lines come from the Earth's crust, so in a sense, she is deep below the surface. Mm-hmm. So even though the story itself is riven by division, as you rightly pointed out, it needs the magma for it to exist. And, and for me, she provided that.
0: Oh, That's a great way to put it. Well, let's hear uh, some of Fault Line's number two.
2: Listen, listen, this neither begins nor ends with me. Not such a hate cascading down time. Crossing sea and sky and continent, a hate that sails beside friendship, love, fealty, so many skiffs. I could not say where it began, perhaps only the stars can, for beginnings come clothed in mist. There are many who will claim to know Vyasa foremost, but even saintly bards, especially when sons, don't allow tales to travel unadorned. And so I must uncage the quieter lore, Let them wander, rags and slander notwithstanding. There may be rhyme, but not much reason, Little meter, both but both stress and distress. This is not the whole story, Nor a lyrical history of mankind. It is what I know to be mine, True or nearly so, Perhaps not at all at times, for truth is a beast more wayward than time. So listen, listen, once I learnt there was a king complete with queen, court and kingdom, these not to be heard but seen. One morning, let's say a rare soft morning in beryl, claret and cream, with the gods at play in some other clime, the king went off to hunt as kings are wont. He chased and stalked, trapped, shot and killed. Having killed and killed again, littered the land with dead heart and doe, tiger, partridge, even crow. He thought of his wife, his favoured sport and pastime, and felt a sudden surge of sperm. Loath to lose a rich future life, into a banyan tree he came, a leaf he sealed and bade his falcon carry home to his queen. Perhaps he then killed some more. Perhaps he lay down to dream of greater glory. But now we must follow the sperm story. The bird, ambushed by a viler raptor when halfway home, was forced to drop the seed over a snaking silver watercourse. Into the mouth of a thirsting fish it fell. And the next thing we know, nine months on, a fisherman, grizzled but not slow, Hauled her on to his bamboo bottomed coracle, the pregnant, heaving, sperm eating porpoise. Strange the spectacle he found, slicing her belly into two twins, squalling, red cheeked newborns, and minutes later a buxom, breathing upsirra in place of dead fish. Thrice and hard the naiad kissed him, leaving him a little lovelorn then winged her way out of that cruel curse, singing out to the fisherman to take the bundle to the king. King and court, however, did not see two bairns, both winsome as honey, noisome as hell. But the crown prince and his stinky, squalling womb now disposable. Well, boys, said the king, can rule even if they smell like tombs. But I have no use for a girl unless she can be my consort. No, with daughters it's safest to abort. As reward for bringing back their prince, the fisherman won a cloudburst of gold, plus the girl child, non-returnable. With two parting caveats, stark and cold. Call her Matsya Gandhi, the fish-scented one. Take her away, far away. From this land and our son. A princess, and half divine, Bred in a fisher shack, Severed from a brother who'd never know her name. That destiny was mine, That and the relentless stench of shame. Hate came easy, hate came young, Hate for the royal father whose uncaring choice sealed his fate. For a mother who didn't raise her voice. Hate for the loyal foster parent who would praise the king at every meal. Sparing me no detail of his lord's largesse. Never caring once for, or even noting, a daughter's distress. Hate had the smell of dead mackerel. Hate bore shades of teal. I wore it as unhealing wound. I wore it as seal. I bade my time.
0: We've been listening to Karthika Naya read from Until the Lions echoes from the Mahabharata. So you've said that one of your inspirations for Until the Lions was a retelling of the Mahabharata in verse from the perspective of the snakes. And you said it made you appreciate the dangers of telling a story from a single narrative of imagining oneself always at the center of every story and of nations or peoples who are determined to erase every other perspective of a story. And you talk about how your father, who was once open-hearted and open-minded over the years, like India itself, drifted to the right. And obviously it feels like that drift is happening, I think, globally right now. The Indian government is seems intent on squashing counter-narratives or multiple narratives and imagines a certain version of of the Hindu story as the narrative center, but we're also seeing that in China and Israel and the United States. Um, but something left out to me in your conversation with the India, Indian poet and dancer and journalist, Tishani Doshi, where she says, I find it hard to make that leap toward myth, partly because of the aforementioned bovine-obsessed right-wingers and this argument of ownership whose story it is to tell, but also because myth in India seems so alive, so present, it feels a dangerous arena to step into. But you, in contrast, seem very comfortable in myth, not just here but in your other work. So I was curious if you have similar apprehensions or similar fears, and also if there has been any blowback taking a cherished work and elevating the voices of the so-called inferior voices, given the climate that this is all happening in?
2: Um, It is a space, um, I I don't know if the word is comfort, but it is definitely um, excitement. I am very excited about myth, and, and that's not just... Indian myth, or, um, you know, uh, the South Asian um, sphere, I am interested in, in the global legacy of myth, whichever, um, whichever cosmogony belongs to, whether it's Nordic, Chinese, Indian. And of course, it's, uh, you know, today we're in a world where for reasons both very right and wrong, there are all kinds of questions. Um, there's, there's a great preoccupation about appropriation but i think it's also very important to remember that we are each enriched by our own stories and the stories of others and it is only by knowing and understanding and perhaps incorporating the stories of others that we gain access to imagination and empathy both of which i think are key elements to humanity and among the you know among the the crippling lethal issues we're facing from the rise of the right all over the world. One of them, I think, is the total disregard for or even um, uh, awareness of imagination and empathy. Uh, I I do think that's what leads to a single narrative. Hmm. And I've been very fortunate in that, whether I told a story from the the Bangladeshi Sundarban community or... um, a Chinese foundational epic, it's received lots of encouragement and attention. Um, funnily enough, I guess the greatest blowback would be from telling the stories which you would consider are mine. And I put our mine within quotes because I think there are so many minds, uh, pun intended, but, but present. Um, uh, less when I wrote the book because I'd asked my original publisher my Indian publisher whether she was bothered because it was it was the era when books were being banned when books were being contested when you know a lot of issues which are today ever so present but it was sort of the beginning of that that um trend and she said this lovely thing she said don't worry it's poetry none of these guys read poetry (laughs) is that true I don't know (laughs) I don't know because uh she maybe she may be, be on to something because the, the 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 kind of blowbacks have mostly been at readings or public events or on uh, online fora after an interview there were there were magazines that had to close down their comment section because of something i said mm-hmm. um or because i pointed out that the myths have never been monolithic and they've never been um immobile, they've always changed through time, and they're in that sense historiographic because they are so revelatory of the concerns of a certain generation, a certain community, a certain um part of the world or a certain language even mm. uh, because tellings are you know tellings have come from everywhere and and each of those tellings um yes is 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 uh, channeled by concerns and and defenses. And also the eagerness to explore things which haven't been done before, so yeah. So blowbacks um, have been mostly live and present, and and also online. But um, and and yes, I've had I've had emails from people who've asked me how I've dared to do this, and um, it it, there's there's never been uh, my publishers haven't faced anything like like the need for a ban or anything. So I suspect nobody reads poetry. Well,
0: that's a sad reason for there not to be blowback. <laughs> um, but one of the things that I uh, appreciated about Until the Lions is that immediately after we get the voice of Satyavati, who orientes, orients us to the epic with her fault lines, which are sections that are symmetrical prose blocks, we immediately leave the the voices of the main characters and we end up in the voice of an unnamed foot soldier. And then in a, a re- the first of many recurring sections called spouses and lovers, where the women who aren't always named by Vyasa in the traditional telling are given voice. But also with this departure from Satyavati's voice, the form becomes more varied and unpredictable. We aren't getting the symmetrical prose blocks. We're getting a a much more um, playful and fluid uh, variety of forms. And I guess I, I wondered about your strategies and what they were to approach a work that you said was two times longer than the Iliad and Odyssey put together. I I found 10 times longer. I don't know which is true, but that it has nearly 2 million words that contains 200,000 verses and innumerable characters. But even having only 19 voices seems overwhelming to me. But you said something very interesting uh, in one conversation that form was your way to find voice and your way to make voices distinct. So I was hoping maybe you could speak to how that works for you, how you employ poetic form to create character in Intel the Lions.
2: So yes, um, I think the first question I had for myself when I set out to do this was, how, how can I make each of the voices be true to herself or in a few cases himself? Um, there are prose writers who have incredible talent in you know polyphonic telling i always drawn to my name is red for instance where you know orhan pamuk magically makes everything come alive the color red a coin a a, a horse on a um, on a canvas um a dead man a murderer and and makes them each distinct but i was fortunate because without any of that talent, I had the buttress of poetry, and poetry comes with a wealth of forms, especially when um, you're lucky enough to have, uh, you know, bathed in some of that variety thanks to various traditions, whether it's uh, the South Asian one, whether it's the Far Eastern one, whether, the, whether it's the Middle Eastern one, uh, whether it's the European ones with sonnets and canzones and villanelles and triolets. And, um, so each time. I entered a voice, or more appropriately, had a voice enter through me, my, my only question was what would be truest to that voice, to that emotion, or to the situation that that voice needed to inhabit. Even satyavati actually is not prose. It's a, it's a variation of a Japanese form of poetry called the haibun, with, uh, which are traditionally prose poems that end always with a haiku and the haiku is kind of a, a summation or a commentary on the narrative that has gone on so far but which is oblique it's not direct um and in my case um i had a lot of fun with the with the haibun that's actually what gteil referred to as the hidden rhymes a there's, there's a lot of hidden rhyme in there and and each time um like i said the voice um uh, chose the form that seemed most appropriate. So for Kunti, for instance, Kunti is the mother of the Pandavas and a matriarch in her own right. She orchestrates all the major decisions of the Pandavas, from whom they wed, to um to to, to uh, who their allies will be, um, to to their strategy for uh Regaining some of their power um, and and she 's always been she 's very often seen as someone who 's full of love for her sons, but what I saw was also ruthlessness and great resolution and tremendous capacity to govern the lives of so many and What I chose is a is an old uh, is an old 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 uh, italian slash French form called the canzone where sixty there are sixty it's it's sixty five words um so it's five stanzas of twelve plus one ending uh, envoi of five lines and the singularity of the canzone is that it repeats five end words all through these sixty five lines so there are only five end words and you repeat them in a very precise mathematical combination um and those five words to me seemed a really good way of um of reflecting some of her ruthlessness and her purpose mm. and the fact that she had distilled her life to just that purpose. Mm. So that's, you know, that's using a very traditional form. There are times when I've, uh, I've, I've sort of um, fallen back or, or uh, used um, concrete poetry, so visual shapes and playing with color. So grayscale, for instance, one of the Constancy poems, Constancy five, is in two colors. It's in grayscale and black. And it can the grayscale bits are one voice and the black or another. And when you read the poem, you can read it either entirely in grayscale, entirely in black, or together as the duet that it's supposed to be between uh, the, the 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 soldier and the spouse.
0: Well, I was hoping you'd read one of the Constancy poems, but before you do, could you talk more about them as a series? Because it feels like maybe my first impression with Fault Lines and Sachivati's. Um, holding things together being like a tension and a contradiction, the constancy poems feel like they're the least constant, like they're the most inconstant in terms of form, mm-hmm. uh, the most variable in terms of form. But what what are the constancy poems? And then maybe we can hear uh, constancy too after that.
2: That's so perceptive. It, they are actually the counterpoint to Satyavati's very singular, very central narrative, because A, by virtue of uh, whom... Uh, you know, they represent. It's the voiceless. It's the nameless. It's the lovers and, and spouses of the soldiers who've never even been a footnote in, in, in the epic. Um, and and so each time it's a different voice. They're nameless, but there are six of them. And they're a bit like Satyavati in the sense that they intersperse the book. Their presence intersperses the book. And it, it's also an evolution. They they grow from being very succinct um, intimations of what is to come. They're always an intimation of the disaster that is to come, uh, of of the personal cataclysm that's inevitable, because whoever wins the war, the soldiers are not going to have a happy ending, and the families of those soldiers are going to be the first casualties Mm. of this war. And and yes, uh, each one occupies a different space, whether it's in terms of poetic form, whether it's visual, whether it's uh, linguistic.
0: Well, let's hear Constancy Number 2.
2: So Constancy 2 is a concrete poem. I had shaped it as a multiple eye, and that's what it speaks of as well, Uh, as a compound eye, sorry, like like the eyes of uh, insects, which can see several things at the same time. I watch you on days and nights before a battle. Watch you hold me, hold us. And all else in the orbit of an insatiable gaze. Watch you molt flesh and feathers, marrow, muscles, mouth, gills, nephrons, entrails. Slough off all organs till only skin and bone remain, and eyes surge all over. On shoulders and sides. At the base of a spine. On fingertips and knees. In the inlet by your throat. Eyes reappear. One by one. Swivelling. East. West. And down and up. Now to corral. Memories. Now to caress. To count.
0: I'm listening to Karthika Nair read from "Until the Lions." I w- I wanted to talk about one section in, in "Until the Lions" that maybe is similar to the "Sri Parva" in the sense that it the "Sri Parva" is the section of the Mahabharata that is giving voice to the grieving women. So, where we were talking about it containing its own violation potentially. Um, but there's a section in Until the Lions that destabilizes the relationship between the narrator, narration and the reader, I think. And it's called Bedtime Story for a Dasi's son. By this point, we have discovered that even though the story has been recentered by you to a matrilineal line, our female narrator wants to extend her dynasty at all costs. And she urges over and over again what would be considered sanctioned rape to achieve these ends. Um, So I was hoping maybe we could talk a little bit about that. It reminds me of, of your description of the Mahabharata in general, where you say, it is a brilliant, unforgiving manifesto of the ways in which we are all, whether hero or villain, often complicit in injustice in battle. This is all too easy to overlook that while we are victims of violence, we also inflict it almost unthinkingly in many lethal ways. We perpetuate cycles of violence, whether out of inherited hate or righteous anger or hurt. And it feels like we're witnessing that as you elevate voices, those voices also are either unwittingly or, or not, um, thinkingly or unthinkingly are also participating in the violence.
2: Yes, one of the things I did want um, to uh, approach through Satyavati, but also through the responding narratives, is is how um, patriarchy is also maintained by women, that power brings, um, power triggers reactions which are not necessarily um, for the forces of of good or mercy or gentleness. And Satyavati, like you said, um, exemplifies that. In her desire to have this dynasty, in her desire to... Upend the existing order of things, she forces her older son, Vyasa, to her widow doctrine laws so that they will be impregnated by her um you know her bloodline um and this is. What I call sanctioned rape in the book. What actually one of the maids call, tells Satyavati, uh, because the daughters-in-law themselves do not dare to, and that's a cycle that we see often. We see kings forcing themselves on subjects, uh, again with with the idea that their bloodline is the most important. And it has, for me, contemporary resonances which are all too frightening about about the ownership of bodies, about the rights uh, of uh, women but not just women um and and about um uh, the sacrosanctness of order um so this the bedtime stories for dasi's son which the title is is a is again a, a doffing of the hat a lot of the book is to previous tellings uh, bedtime stories is actually in itself a telling of the mahabharata uh, by the late kiran nagarkar who had um Done uh would quite an incendiary play, which was banned in India for some time mm. because it told the Mahabharata. It, it positioned the Mahabharata uh, um, around many many political controversies, co- controversies, and and some of it in the um, prison camps of Bangladesh, etc. So you know, Kiran Nagarkar uh, did that in the '70s, and I think it got published only in the 2010s. So bedtime stories for Al son. Uh, was written in the voice of Sovali, who mostly remains unnamed uh in the epic and she is a maiden uh who is picked by Dhritarashtra the blind king uh to so that she can be impregnated Dhritarashtra is in a tizzy because his brother Pandu's wife is pregnant and his own wife um Gandhari, has been pregnant for over 18 months and shows, so, shows no signs of delivering uh, of an heir. And, and he's, he's desperate to be the father of the heir to the throne. Um, and this is what happens to a woman who you know, served the king and the royal family all her life and is chosen by the priests and, and the physicians as the best womb for a future prince. When the king decides to take you, the contours of your life dissolve. You move within a cage of eyes. The unkindness of eyes that define every action surround you from daybreak to daybreak, from plunder to cleansing to respite to plunder again. Your deflowering, too, is a public act. The bedchamber is not naked, nor is the king. Only you are. Your deflowering, accompanied by priestly chanting and conch shells, Unfolds in three long acts of lunge, grind, rip the lunge of a Himalayan thing that blots out the night, ferus hands and knees that unhinge limbs, prying open arms and thighs, no flesh or thought, all metal and sweat and rush, the grind of chest against belly, the grind of seed-bags on sepals, the grinding of a back into gravel against silken sheets that singe skin and memory. Rip the fine robes you were made to wear. Rip the fragrance of young lips. Rip softness from both breasts. Rip the muslin of a heart hidden between two hips. Its walls liquid, fluid, and dark and furious. Darkness bellows and overflows till you feel no more. But you wake all too soon, and when you wake, the king has recommenced, so have the prayers. At first you know no anger, no fear, only pain that permeates from skin to marrow. Your spine is bent, bone after bone, with the weight of a tungsten sky. Your breasts have aged, the nipples turn to rust, mouth and tongue swell into rubble and dust. Your back and neck bear the hieroglyphics of talons. Deep and live and rubescent, the kingdom's untold history... Your belly is a molten, screaming pit that cannot be hushed. When the king decides to rape you, no one will use the word rape. The word does not exist in the king's world. Your body is just another province he owns, from navel to nipple to eyelid, from insole to clitoris. And it is not over yet. Time moves from night to night, from one coupling to the next. For you are to be pounded till you procreate. Each night he comes to peel and split you open like a tangerine, suck dry then discard all thought of you except the seed. Each night you must try to be pliant, for a king's displeased voice can sever heads. Each night you curse the queen whose unending incubation has forced you to her husband's bed. Each night, you pity the Queen whose husband knows no tenderness, no love in his loins save for a son and heir. Each night. Till the day the priests announce your child bound and the delicate state removes you from the King's chambers. For nine months you're precious, the bite of your belly, the altar at which the eyes, the unkindness of eyes, dance and bow. Then one day, you're not. Your son has dehist, a slash of earth, Red, ripe and viscous, that swims out from the sea above your legs. And the queen's hundred sons burst forth from their capsules. The dearth of infants is over. Court and kingdom rejoice. Court and kingdom expel you and your kin to the outer boundaries of the land with a fistful of gold to keep you well away from your son. But you return. You return again and again until the queen, who fears your being... Promises the child can visit you, so you will not cast a shadow on her realm. So you wait. You wait for the day he will make that journey to your hut, to your heart. Each day, you wait with tireless gaze scorching the path to your hut. Each day, you clean the bare insides of your home till they gleam in pain. Each day you repeat the story you will tell your son, even as you hear the distant chant of the unkindness of eyes. When the king decides to take you, there is nowhere to run. The land is his, the rivers are his. The sky too, the birds dwelling there bemoan. When the king decides to take you, there is nowhere to hide, with earth and heaven and hell his turf. When the king decides to take you, no one comes to the rescue. The gods are his. Myth and legend to his own.
0: I've been listening to Karthika Nair read from Until the Lion's Echoes from the Mahabharata from Archipelago Books. I was hoping we could also hear Blood Moon Rising, which is a very, uh, is within the same concern, but I feel like is a very different poem. And maybe you could orient us to it into the story of Purna.
2: Yes, it is a very different poem, as you said. The contexts um, are in a way analogous, but um, purna—the choice lies in purna's hands, and that makes all the difference. So purna, who's unnamed in the epic, um, she's just known as a handmaiden—is um, the maiden to Ambika Satyavati's widow, daughter-in-law, on whom she forces Vyasa um, in order to have an heir the first time they couple um the son who is born dhritarashtra is born blind because apparently ambika shut her eyes in horror when she saw vyasa she was expecting bhishma the other um the other brother vyasa goes on to uh impregnate the other sister ambalika uh, and the son uh, born is 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 blanched uh, he's he's um and In my telling of it, he's already infertile, uh, because um, apparently uh, Ambalika turns white in horror on seeing Vyasa. So Satyavati asks Vyasa to sleep with her daughter's-in-law one more time, this time Ambika, and Ambika, who's been through this terrible sanctioned rapes, decides to send her maid. Or, as it it goes in my telling, the maid steps in um, to rescue Ambika, who is... Um, in a in a in a terrible state of fear and will would rather kill herself than go through this. So Purna spends the night with Vyasa, but she seizes control of that act and tells Vyasa, who you know apparently has been celibate and has no idea what to do and um, has only learnt lovemaking from the books, and therein the mistake how important it is to give pleasure in an act of lovemaking. So this is basically um, Purna instructing Vyasa um, in the art of lovemaking. Mm. And the child they have, uh, incidentally, is Vidura, who is considered the perfect human being and would have been the perfect king were he not... um, as, as Bhishma tells Sativati of a lower caste, because his mother is a dasi, is a maiden, uh, is, is a handmaiden. And, and so he never goes on to become king, but he proves to be the wisest prime minister the kingdom could have. So it's, again, one of those many, many ways in which um, caste inequality and injustice um, actually defines the epic. So the poem is called Blood Moon Rising, Poor Vyasa. Begin with the labia, Lord. Make me a word, swift and feather-light, a flurry beneath the philtrum, nuzzling the upper then lower lip, teasing teeth apart, swirls on tongue-tip and blade and root that carry ribbon-lightning to the brain, the smoky wine-sting of caresses on a hard palate. Transform from noun to verb, these lips. Savor. Brush, sip, for tonight we need no food to dine. Should anyone ask for my keepsake, my sign of birth or station? Tell them, Lord, nothing matters but this night song with alap of twined tongues, tatters of pulse that will drut and tintal, the lag bahar of your breath deep within my throat. Hip and thigh, shaft, pubis. In long bandish, flesh to flesh, That shatters thought and time. For mating, like music, is no race, No clocks await at start or finish, Pleasure shared stays the sole prize, And keepsake, as faces change, Voices drift, signs wilt. Save its five-chambered heart, Treasure misplaced by God's, Write the colour henna, sign the name grace, name its fragrance earth, colour its music midnight, label the shape desire, relic, once more from heaven, measure its weight to sunlight but also planet, add a fifth Veda, Lord, penned in euphoric verse, on karma, unnamed melody that lends harmony to both virtue and wealth. And spell how karma, dharma, artha, usher as one moksha, the last remedy. With your finger on my fair body, resume writing, my lord. Define your landscape of pleasure, your spine arches. Permit my hands, maiden journeys, let one graze lush terai around the chest. Scale the incline of collarbone, then reappear on the nape of a neck, curving your head towards my breasts. The other hand trails your behind, tracing half-spheres now and then. The moon dwells there, twin demi lunes, tight and perfect, a yoni. For reflect, Lord, a flame must burn both blue and golden. Thirst requited is key to coitus. More so if the desired effect as healthy sons lust loaming the womb attest our midwives Men must bring not to seek the pinnacle So rouse my seed, set hands and tongue roaming now, and then it'll be gloaming again and again the blessed moment when night and day merge to stain to stain skies and many hued delight. Continue, Lord Unfurl my petals, taste and quaff, trace and stroke the walls till they come alive, flame, throb and bloom to complete this rite that spring enjoins. Penetrate, then thrust, thrust, succumb to the pain, explode future selves, lose your being. But do not lose me, for it isn't over yet, not till I surge and pound and flood, Till I become, yes, come, come, let us flow away in the jellum, the night, or the Milky Way. You plead, leave the land, this world. How dear, how absurd are lovers' demands in bliss, even those of ascetics. I came, Lord, in aid of a distressed lass. I came to bear a wise, robust child for this clan. Ever afters, you must understand, are not for maids. Nor life, should the queen wish to flay defiance in its bud. You'll forget me too, though perhaps not this night. For nothing forever remains, whether thirst or royal norms. Even the sun must melt away. The seasons in the valley will change too one day.
0: And listening to Karthika Naya read from "Until the Lions." So, the place where we go to the most unnamed or the most forgotten is the one place where you imagine a character into being. I was hoping you could talk to us about Shunika. Tell us about them. What, why you felt compelled to create this character and then dramatize them.
2: So um, Shunaka is is many things. For one, while reading the Mahabharata and its various iterations, um, one of the things that struck me is is just how, even for for an epic which is quite self aware and you know, provides its own critique of of caste or gender inequities, uh, it's singularly indifferent to abuse on all the other species. Uh, men do the most. Uh, terrible. um, I mean, they commit acts of gratuitous violence a lot of times. And by men, I mean mankind. And and I thought it would be um, a counterpoint even to the minor, uh, shall we say the subaltern narrative to provide one that is from another species altogether. And uh, choosing a dog came automatically to me because that's one of the things Tishani and I talk about. I grew up surrounded by dogs. They they felt a lot more like my kin. Um and and also uh the Shunaka has two literary and real ancestors. One is the great Arun Kulatkar's Pie Dog, uh, which is the opening poem in his Kalagoda poems. Um so the pie dog is, is this dog that sleeps on a uh, traffic island in, in Bombay in the Kalaghoda district and provides a commentary on everything he sees, um, the human beings, the traffic, the sunlight, and also provides a, a kind of narrative of his own genealogy, uh, talking of how he descended from uh, one of the dogs in the Mahabharata and so on, and it's the most amazingly debonair, self-assured canine character I have ever come across. Mm. So, in a sense, Shunaka is descended from uh, Ugg. He calls himself Ugg, and and in a very real sense, I took inspiration from uh, one of my parents' dogs, uh, whose name is Shwanan. Incidentally, both Shwanan and Shonaka come from the Sanskrit word for dog. So, they you know they've been called dog. <laughs> um and and Shunaka Shunaka provides her view of um of what the humans are capable of and that's rampant destruction and she warns the entire poem is actually a warning to her sibling to stay away from humankind
1: mm.
2: of how dogs and other animals have never been um have have n- really never gained from that association that it's been um it's been one of enslavement or subjugation all through, her eye. You know, all through time in her eyes.
0: Well, when you've spoken about how your strategy to make the different voices distinct on the page was starting with poetic form, I, did you have to do that with the dog? Because the way you describe Shunaka's um, is that you're very intimate to, to a voice or voices that are very personal to you. Um, was was did form play a role in in making the character unique in, in this case um,
2: well i hope so i if you notice it's um all of the poem uh, is written in five line stanzas and they're actually again a, a variation of the tanka. i i play fast and ro- uh, loose with the rules in the sense that they're run-on stanzas instead of ending in you know in, instead of ending with the five lines but they're all in the 57577 five, seven, seven syllabic form each stanza and i wanted to uh, convey a certain succinctness that Shunaka has a certain economy uh in her choice of mm. words and and memories
0: well i i wanted to pivot to something else because it isn't only you who that that brings the forgotten and unnamed to the forefront of the story in the sense that i feels like the text also does this with the story of amba who is brought very low but then is then returns as a very powerful figure uh, and i know this section is the is the section that akram khan adapted for dance for his version of until the lions so I was hoping you could talk to us both about what compels you about this story and any theories or knowledge you have of why Khan would choose to use this specific part of a multi-faceted polyphonic or poly vocal story um, to create a dance performance around.
2: Uh, so first... Coming to the Amba Shikhandi voice, yes, is is very close to my heart. In fact, um, it was probably the first individual character that I wrote after the collective voices, and um, it was certainly the toughest to imagine because I needed to inhabit what was two bodies shared by the same soul, Amba and Shikhandi, but for that I should uh, give a little introduction to the character. So Amba was the eldest princess of Kashi, in the epic, the princesses of Kashi were traditionally wedded to uh, the crown prince of Hastinapur, except Amba's father, who manifestly raised them with a lot of autonomy and gave them the kind of freedom that the other women in the epic don't necessarily have, most of them... Uh, Held a swayambara for them. That is, he um, he asked them to choose their own husbands at the ceremony where they could, where all the kings and princesses of the land were princess of the land were invited. But because of Viditravirya, that is Satyavati's son's half caste uh, status, um, they pointedly neglected or refused to invite him. Satyavati takes umbrage at this insult, and she orders. Bhishma, her stepson, the regent of the kingdom, to go and abduct one of the princesses. Bhishma abducts all three. Satyvat, um, Amba um Umba among them. But when Umba is brought to the Hastinapur court, she explains that she is already in love. She is secretly betrothed to the man she was about to garland when Bhishma came in and, you know, uh, laid laid uh, uh, ruin to the entire Kashi court. Um laid waste to that. Uh, and and she says when she's when she's wedded to him, in her mind, she could not possibly wed with Traviriya. So Satyavati and Bhishma decide to send Amba to Shalva, her betrothed, who is the king of another minor kingdom. But Shalva rejects her. Uh, he sees her as damaged goods. He sees her as spoils of war of another man, Bhishma, and he orders her to go back to Bhishma. So she's rejected by Shalva. She goes back to Bhishma and she claims to him, uh, or rather she... She reclaims her position uh, that as abductee, he ought to marry her to restore her honor and her love. And Bhishma, who's taken a vow of celibacy, this is where it gets a bit complex. Bhishma taken a vow of celibacy so that Satyavati's children can inherit the throne, um, which was a condition she had imposed when she married his father, claims helplessness. Bhishma says he cannot marry her because that would be breaking uh, an oath that is sacred to him. But Amba says famously, is a, woman's, is a living woman's you know, being, her life, not more important to you than a dead vow? Um, Bhishma has no response to that except to get angry and, and reject um, every single argument she makes, including, and this is in the epic, including Satyavati's um, own plea that perhaps he should wed Amba because I think everybody is kind of horrified by the injustice of it all. And um, Amba then goes away and importunes every kingdom, every every king, every warrior in the land uh, for justice, saying, will someone not fight and vanquish Bhishma and order him to you know, do right to her? Every single king and warrior uh, is, is, is rather bewitched by Amba's beauty, but equally petrified by Bhishma's power, especially as a warrior. So Amba invokes the gods. There are these descriptions of the number of years she spends alone in, in prayer um, invoking the gods until the by the sheer strength of her supplications, the balance of the universe is disturbed and the gods have to answer. So they send Shiva, the one of the three primary gods, and uh, he offers her a way out. He says... He will grant her the boon to to vanquish Bhishma, but she has to be reborn and to become a man because as a woman in this birth, she cannot. So Amba actually kills herself. She throws herself into fire. She's reborn, but that's not enough. She's reborn as a princess in another kingdom in Panchal. She has to become a man. So there's this whole process of becoming a man, uh, of gaining the male gender, in order for her to go and be able to face Bhishma on the battlefield. And she becomes a man called Shikhandi. She's reborn as, um, as Shikhandi. And then um, there's, you know, this huge description of how she um, has to transform into a man. She's helped by a, a night spirit. Well, an, yeah. it,
0: it feels like another example, like we talked about Satyavati, uh, um, where there's a ton of agency. Like Amba has, no matter how rejected and low she is, she's an actor in her own story. But on the other hand, she's participating in the cycle of the endless cycle of violence. So she, like Satyavati, with preserving the dynasty at all costs, seems to be helplessly caught in a cycle of, of patriarchy and violence.
2: Absolutely. What I what I most found compelling about Amba's narrative is precisely what you said, about how she derives agency even in a situation of total helplessness, that she never accepts. Um, she she's never acquiescent, uh, unlike all these other characters, whether female or male. But uh, her her story becomes even more fascinating because it, it raises the question of when justice becomes vengeance, and how far that vengeance, you know, how much destruction that that quest for justice actually wreaks um, in its desire to to redress a wrong. So a wrong becomes you know just just engenders another wrong, which is even bigger and leads to more and more destruction
0: when you're writing the amba shikandi section so amba as both woman and man incarnated in different times you present amba in right justified grayscale and shikandi her later male form in pure black prose blocks and amba's words are delivered in sonnets and shikandi's are not and i'm just i want to hear about how you create and juxtapose and contrast this character's voices in two genders on the page.
2: So that's why this poem took the longest to write. Um, there was a need to embody these two voices, these two beings on the same page. And like you said, Amba uh, is in grayscale, so there's both a design, um, uh, an immediate visual distinction. Amba is in grayscale, Shikandi is in... Isn't pure black, and there are these um, connective tercets between them, which are which are almost a a response from both of them. And Amber um, speaks in sonnets till she recalls the moment of trauma, and then it breaks down into 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 free verse and even into a lack of punctuation, for instance. So there's there's that through the narrative when she when the force of of that story just overpowers her. Shikhandi actually does not speak in in prose. It's a it's an ancient form uh, of Sufi Punjabi poetry called the siharfi, where um, the divine is invoked through the alphabet. So it's like an there, it runs through the alphabet. Except that in Shikhandi's case, there is no divine. Her her cause, her devotion is to exacting revenge on Bhishma. So her run through the alphabet, her ploughing, as it were, is actually a manual for war, which is why the poems call manual for revenge and remembrance. The remembrance is Amba's; the the, um, the revenge is entirely Shikhandi's. It's a user's manual for war, and and that all the Shikhandi sections are kind of grounded in verbs. They're all verbs of mm. what you know what actions are required to to exact that that revenge.
0: So, do you want to read a, an excerpt from the Amba Shikandi section?
2: Yes, if that's fine with you. I thought I thought I could do the the last movement. Okay. So this is uh, the manual for Revenge and Remembrance, and it's the fifth and final movement, which begins with Amba's voice and then transitions into Shikandi's. For it is time. For it is I. The two stories you cannot flee. We are your death and destiny. For this time, I shall battle you unfettered, free of my female frame, free as the primeval seas. For this time, I traverse death and rebirth and lease no, beg manliness from a yaksha, nameless tree sprite, lord of the night. This time, there'll be no debris of woman in me, my head grows sunwards, my knees and back hard. Unbending, the voice, the voice unreels into bark. I scour softness, scrub grace from the skin till what glows is pure steel, unfurl my womb and fly it, dripping rust, as pennant, perhaps shroud, then peel and burn the breasts. This time we meet. Neither shall win. For I will slay you. But first, you shall watch me die. So begin, begin to begin, begin to end. March arm in arm with death towards your vengeance, the vengeance you nursed like a firstborn. Name and number the iniquities of the enemy. Nail grief, needle wrath, Narrow its gaze on that single being. Obliterate all others for practice. Warriors, archers, charioteers. Order your army to excess. Overrule elders, counsellors, judge and jury, outlaw poets and peacekeepers. Pursue dharma but at casual pace. Persecute those dearest to the foe. Plague him, plague him till he prevails. Prepare to see present and future quashed, nephews, fathers, sons quartered, the women questing for lost kin. Quiesce, quiesce and quaff your impending victory, your irrevocable loss. Revel in its flavor. Recall that thirst. Resurrect the lost years. The yearning. Release yourself from oath and loathing. Sound the kettle drums, the conches. Salute the foe and strike. Strike that spear through gullet and lung and ligament. Shatter his skull. Shred might and right and thought. To blood, bone, gristle. Snuff out your soul. Time.
0: so so tell us why this section is the section that Akram Khan adapts, and why it is now becoming an opera that you're working on the libretto for why why do you think that you're you this is the voice that you came to near the beginning, but wh- why is it a voice that people seem to also pull from this story and and change its form, much like Amba and Shikani change form.
2: I hadn't thought of that, but that's so true. Um, in Akram's case, he knew it instantly. He didn't even bother to read the rest of the book. I don't think he ever read it. Uh, he, he just, um, I I'd recounted this to him, so he heard it from me, which is interesting because, you know, the Mahabharata is an oral narrative before all else, like most of the epics. Um and he was instantly uh, sort of in throes of memory because I guess you know this, Akram had performed in Peter Brook's Mahabharata. He played the role of Ekalavya, uh, not during its premiere in Avignon, but in the touring version and also the one that was filmed. So it's a, a young Akram that we see in, in you know the, the archives that we today have. And some of his best memories were related to Amba, both the actress who had taken care of him since he was such a, like he says, he was quite a child and so it was mostly the women actors who made sure he was okay and uh, also the character of Amba as as depicted by Peter Brook. And it so happened we both were, while we loved the character who has some of the best lines in Jean-Claude Carrière's script, um, it also has a very strange ending in the Brook version. In the Brook version... Amba now Shikhandi forgets the reason why um, he she has tried so hard, why they have spent an, two entire lifetimes trying to get revenge, and they put their arms down at the moment of battle, and so it's it's a duel between Arjuna and Pishma, um, which for both Akram and me was a was a strange. Um, loss of precisely the closure that Amba and Shikhandi in both lives try so hard to attain and go through so much sacrifice. So this was our way of redressing the balance. Mm. So it's quite an immediate choice in Akram's case. In the case of the opera, uh, and, and, and to, to, to also add that it's a coda because we both loved the Peter Brook version, but we both agreed that this was the one thing that felt lacking that it was not, you know, justice, so to say. To Come to the Opera it was commissioned by the late Eva Kleinitz, artistic director of the Opéra Nationale du Rhin. And um, it's uh, it's uh, interesting because the only condition, she gave us a carte blanche in terms of characters, etc., her only condition was that she wanted sativati present. She wanted sativati to have the primacy she does in the book because she said there are so few transformative, powerful women in opera. You know, any time they have agency, they sort of suffer for it. Satyavati is the rare exception, and she wanted that to be staged in an opera. And the choice of Amba came from the choreographer-director Shobhana Jaisingh, because once she gave us that, and um, we'd invited Shobhana Jaisingh to to be the director and choreographer, Thierry Peku, the composer, and I said to Shobhana that, We would like her to choose whichever narrative she wanted because we wanted it to be something she owned and that she desired. Usually, as you know, operas are first written by the librettist and composer and then whoever is the director comes and stages that. But we really wanted it to be as much her choice of narrative and she loved the Amber story. There were parts that I could not insert because, for instance, she wanted bits of Soberly to come in but that did not make dramaturgical sense. So we have stuck to the Amba story, but seen through Sativati, Sativati remains quite the vertebral column even here. Hmm.
0: Well it seems fitting since epics were often created to be sung, recited, and staged, but you also write a lot of your poetry in anticipation of adaptation. Is that is that right?
2: Well a lot of my writing is actually commissioned for stage.
0: And I just wondered how that affected both the the commissioned work but also now the phenomenon that the non-commissioned work is being adapted so many different ways. Does that affect the the process of writing for you having that forethought?
2: The adaptation doesn't affect the original in the sense, um, uh, how do I explain this? A lot of my writing is already predicated by dance and movement and patterns, uh, especially choreographic patterns. There are poems in this book, notably Constancy 6, um, which is a riff from an existing performance. And there are poems, for instance, Amba uh, is is very much about shapes on a page and you know this the sea what you call the blocks they are very much like bodies moving across a stage so that's already there and most of the book was written without the idea that it would be adapted so it was across from existing dance works and now it's going i mean now it's been going back into dance the commissioned work is actually when I when I write for dance is very much influenced by poetry. You know, rather ironically, um, it's very much influenced by rhythms and structure and patterns and loops and things that I usually do in my in my non commissioned work.
0: Hmm. Well, you said in the in the conversation with Tashani Doshi when she asks you if you feel part of an Indian lineage, you, res- you respond by saying the one lineage that feels wholly mine. One that I don't have to defend or find DNA for is dance, and you end your response by saying that in a funny way you may not even be writing if it weren't for dance and for a dysfunctional body. And I was hoping maybe you could just talk a little more about that how dance brings you to the page. So, so in a, in a strange way these adaptations are returning to dance, because your writing starts with it, as you just mentioned. But how does that how did that start? How did it start that you um, found writing through dancing or through being a dance curator and producer?
2: Exactly. Um, It begins with dance that seems a fitting return to the source. Um, So I've never been a dancer that's a, that's something that keeps getting ascribed to me but I'm not I I couldn't um I have recessive diastrophic epidermolysis bullosa so uh, um you know any physical contact is is prone to create lesions and blisters and dance is pretty much out of my realm of possibility what I do uh, as as a career of course um is produce in performing arts and primarily in dance. And I'd actually stopped writing after I reached France. I hadn't been writing poetry. I was uh, writing prose. I was, I was uh, uh, doing the arts beat for a couple of newspapers in India as a stringer, nothing more. But I stopped writing completely after I reached France. Maybe it was the 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 all-encompassing kind of investment that um, – an entirely new life required and also working in environments that were very different, Um, being submerged in a language which was still relatively new, uh, unlike all the other languages that I spoke. Um, But around 2005, which is when I started working full-time and in a very intensive way in dance, was also the, the time that I started writing poetry, and I think it was born out of a need to hear... English, which I wasn't hearing anymore, and so at least to hear it in my head and and not wanting to um not wanting the the kind of ease and 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 um lushness of prose if that makes sense, and the very first poems I wrote were responses to dance pieces I wrote because i there was this strange need to create narrative around dance, and those first ecrastic poems. Uh, were today to me interestingly not predicated by the the structure of the dance but by the themes that they um, you know sprung from, for instance, zero degrees was about loss of identity, how much immigration migration um, Predicates identity. How much having a piece of paper defines who you are. Those things, and I was very much involved in that. I was working for the Museum of Immigration then, heading uh, mm-hmm. the art, um, the art programming, and production. Um, there was Tempus Fugit, which was about um, the shortness of time, the the ephemerality of time, and I created an entire narrative over a duet sequence in that, which was about time appearing as a woman and seducing this man, uh, who who you know, thinks he's reviving her, uh, the traditional uh, uh, sleeping beauty narrative which is turned on its head by the woman time. So all the initial poems were either about the body, uh, about the body as a space, the body as a vessel for dysfunction, but also the body as uh, an instrument for performance.
0: So the the first two years of the five-year project of writing Until the Lion's, you were doing research and of course the research continued during the 3 years of the writing of the book i'm sure and i suspect your research is far more omnivorous than most not just looking at other retellings of the mahabharata but drawing upon other varied sources and you're you have this incredible section at the end your your references include margaret atwood's book the penelopeiad Mariko Nagai's Georgic, Salman Rushdie's Joseph Anton, Kom Tobin's The Testament of Mary. They include film adaptations of both the Mahabharata and Shakespeare's Coriolanus, a large number of dance and theater productions from Pina Bausch's 1975 production of Rite of Spring to 2012 French production of Antigone. So I guess I was hoping you could talk about any of these less obvious resources research sources for you, and perhaps a little bit about the process of research for you.
2: One of the best pieces of advice I got when um, I started uh, what became Until the Lions was to read and watch and listen to everything to do with war and conflict, whether it was um, an Avengers movie those hadn't begun yet, but you know, in the, in the scheme of things, or Shakespearean Coriolanus, or Ovid, or um, uh, you know, the the the, the, the Iliad, uh, or of course the the South Asian epics themselves, uh, and it was really really good piece of advice, and hence uh, hence Antigone, for instance, because that staging it's a staging of Anui, uh, and not of Sophocles, the the one that I have referenced, though I saw that as well, one of those as well. It was by this China, uh, this um, Canadian, um, Canadian theatre director called Mark, uh, uh, Mark uh, Pekyong. And um, what I loved about that and about Anui's interpretation of Antigone is that it is steeped in humanness. It is steeped in the opposite of certainty. Everybody has a moment of doubt and uncertainty, whether it is Crayon or Antigone herself. Uh, there is none of that sort of supreme assurance of the, the rightness of each position. And I found that fascinating. Mm. I found that fascinating and much more uh, compelling than these unshakable positions. Because even Vyasa questions his own actions in, in Until the Lions. That was, that was so useful to, uh, you know, doubt as a motor much more than these immovable positions. The rite of spring for its sheer force and and brutality, but also the, the kind of relentlessness it has in terms of rhythm, and um, that really I mean Stravinsky, but also Bausch and her staging of it with earth. It is so elemental that earth, for instance, really comes in with uh, with something like um, uh, beneath the music, the second segment of Pontok which which you know ends the book. Um, and and yes, Bausch for the sheer rhythms and 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 um, the the combination of of tenderness and and just uh, unflinching uh, brutality that humanity is capable of, yeah. and and specifically through Rite of Spring, but also both you know the, the everyday kind of casual violence and the everyday um, love that one looks for in, in a piece like Contact of.
0: Well, near the beginning, we talked about the question of how these retold myths might be received in an India that has been moving Mm. to the right. But you've also written about terrible questions. You've been terrible questions asked of touring dance companies and the stereotypes and ignorance that get revealed as the dance companies tour. And in, in one of your writings, you recount a research and development session of a specific production where one of the collaborators compared Bangladesh and Pakistan to a rebellious teenager with his father. And you wondered if anyone would have been as indulgent if it, if he had said Stalin's occupation of Poland was like a loving, but strict father dealing with his teenage son's quixotic dreams, which I I loved as a retort, but I, but it made me wonder now that you're touring for the book far and wide Um, How this has been, um, how the encounters have been out in the world with the book, um, whether you're met with stereotypes and ignorance like the touring dance companies or whether you're met with something else.
2: So far, the U.S., it's been it's been actually wonderful. I've met scholars and Sanskritists and students who spent years with the epics or with Sanskrit. I've met. Uh, poetry practitioners and aficionados who, are, you know, um, uh, whose gaze is is intently on the forms or uh, the things I've attempted to do through through forms and voices, the one question which I think is universal and that I do get and which annoys me intensely, is oh, but can anybody who doesn't know the Mahabharata read this book? Uh, and I'm afraid, in my less diplomatic moments, I say, well, none of us was born knowing Ovid or Homer. Um, mm-hmm. And none of us, you know, none of us knew these these epics uh, immediately. They're all things that we've read and learned and seen, and 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 I think access is as much or as little to an epic, whichever one it is. And we're still lots of us, uh, maybe uh, not that familiar with uh, Ragnarok uh, or details of the Nordic uh, mm-hmm. cosmogony, but um, that never prevents anybody from you know reaching to I think that world
0: yeah well you're you're working on the libretto for the adaptation of the amba section what else are you working on now that we can expect from you in the future
2: um so i finished the libretto the 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 opera premieres the premier the opera premieres on march 21st next year uh, so the opera is sort of very much behind for me uh, in terms of actually working on it. Uh, the next piece is a commissioned dance theatre production uh, of the Butterfly Lovers, uh, which um, premieres in September two thousand twenty, and uh, is to celebrate the seventy years, celebrate slash commemorate the seventy years of um, the Chinese Revolution. Hmm.
0: Well, I think a good place to end would be with a reading of Constancy Six, which you had mentioned was a particular one that came from dance.
2: Yes, it does. It, this the, structurally it borrows from the de Kirschmarkers' germinal uh, work, which is the violin solo um, she calls Violin Faza uh, in, in Flemish, uh, and which is which is itself inspired by Steve Reich's Phases. Constancy 6. Before God, before the dead, before children, before a world, dance. Before the sea drowns, before clouds conflagrate, before the phoenix drops, before thorns flower, write. Before you leave, before I lose, before it rives, before they blaze, Ravel. Before you leave home, Banish to a land named alone, Before I lose my voice, Voice that will roam sphere seeking yours, Before a border rives language From love, marrow, and bone, Before words blaze through veins And jagged tongues of fire, Ravel wild cursives from a pledge, Retrieve its letters, vowels, abjuds, and all. Send them to safety, from lip to lip to heart and lung. Before the sea drowns, gills clogged by a rain of blood. Before clouds conflagrate, scorch the seasons, rain dark light. Before the phoenix drops her song, sealing the casement to dawn before thorns flower and bronchioles and branches crowd airways. Write it all. Little stories, giant histories, a few myths. Tie them to cotton seeds so they fall in distant hands. Etch a copy on memory's palms. Call it the human crease. Before God dies, smile trampled, a thousand arms crushed underfoot. Before the dead return like moonlight, trailing white ash and regrets before children swap marbles for slugs and swallow darkness at meals, before a world of straight lines and iron-clad right owns your rise, dance, dance on vanishing shores between night and half-light, return, return to nest like stacked spoons, lock chest with spine. Twine hip and thigh, knit ten fingers, purl the lips once more before the battle.
0: Thank you for being on Between the Covers, Karthika.
2: Thank you again for having invited me, David.
0: We're talking today to poet Karthika Nair about Until the Lions Echoes from the Mahabharata from Archipelago Books. You've been listening to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's program was recorded at the studios of KBOO, volunteer-powered, non-commercial, listener-sponsored, full-strength community radio from Portland, Oregon, found at KBOO.fm. For those subscribed to the ever-growing bonus audio archive, Karthika Nair contributes two things to it. She discusses Deepak Unakrishnan's book winner of the 2017 Hindu Prize, Temporary People. She talks about why she loved it, and then she reads from it. But at the end of the program, I also asked Karthika if there's anything she'd like to add to the main discussion that we didn't cover. As you'll recall, we talk about poetic form in relationship to voice and character development, and Karthika wanted to talk more specifically about the canzone, a form which... She calls a feat of acrobatics. She discusses why this form suited the character Kumti particularly well, and then reads the canzoni for us. Originally, I was going to slip this into the main conversation, but in the end, there was no elegant way to do so. So this week, the two bonus readings and discussions from Karthika Nair will join supplemental material by Matilda Bernstein-Sycamore, Daniel Jose Older, Laylee Long Soldier, Richard Powers, Ted Chang, Carmen Maria Machado, Tommy Pico, John Keane, Diane Williams, Christina Rivera Garza, and others. All of this can be found at patreon.com between the covers. Finally, I'd like to thank Imre Lodbrog and Barbara Browning for creating the outro. Their album Imre Lodbrog A e Sapatita Me can be found on iTunes. And Barbara Browning's trove of ukulele covers can be found at soundcloud.com slash Barbara Browning.